Ben Redmond was a squirrely little fifth grader on my seventh and eighth grade boys soccer team. And what's a fifth grader doing on a seventh and eighth grade boys soccer team? Well, I coached at a very small school and we didn't have enough seventh and eighth grade boys. So I had invited some of the sixth grade boys, if they wanted to come out and play, to come out and play. And well, when Ben got heard of that, he was like, well, fifth grade, sixth grade is not that much different. Maybe they'll let me play too. So he got his dad who taught with me to come ask me to see if there's any chance that Ben could come play on our soccer team. And I was short of players. I'm like, why not? Ben, come on out and play with us. But Ben was, he probably weighed about 50 pounds. He was, you know, just a little wispy kid. And before he came to, out to play, I pulled him aside and said, Ben, we need to have a talk, Phil. If you're going to play soccer on the 7th and 8th grade boys, they're the big boys. You're not a big boy. They're the big boys. And if you're going to play with the big boys, you have to act like a big boy. Okay, you got that? That means they're going to be a little stronger than you. That means you may get knocked around a little bit. You may get pushed around. You're going to have to be tough. Okay, Mr. Wood, I can be tough. I can be tough, Mr. Wood. And so we got playing and a couple games in, and it was time to put Ben into the game. Now, if you've coached youth soccer, you understand this. You sometimes have to hide players, and you hide them in the corners. And, you know, you hide them as the cornerbacks, or you hide them as, as the wings up front. And if you're playing youth soccer right now, and your coach has you playing there, um, that's not how your coach does it. He does it different, okay? But my, when I was coaching, and so I put Ben into the game, and I'm like, i got to hide Ben here somewhere. So I put him up on right wing. Uh, right forward there, and he's coming down the the, uh, the field and in front of the bench where I was coaching, and the ball got played ahead of him, and he was running, and arms and legs are going in every direction, but he's running down the field there, and before he can get to the ball, the the, the back on the other team, it rolled to him, and he just pushed it, punted it back, and it caught Ben square in the middle, and it just flattened him, and it was this moment, was Ben going to be a big boy or not? And Ben collapsed, and Ben burst into tears, and Ben was (laughs) trying to get his breath, and he's looking at me like, Coach, take me out, take me out. And the ref stops the game, and the ref goes over there, and he looks down at Ben, he calls me over, and I'm like, "Uh uh-uh. Ben, you told me you'd be a big boy out there. You're going to be a big boy. And he's just looking at me like, you got to be kidding. I'm I'm almost dead here, and you won't even come out. I'm I'm like, get up and start playing and he slowly collected himself and, and got back up and, and got back into the game. And I tell that story because it reminds us of life a little bit, doesn't it? Where we're like, I'm going to be tough, I'm going to be the big boy, I'm going to handle things. And all of a sudden something comes along and it just hits us right in the gut. And, and it can be something, sometimes even small, sometimes it's big. You know, maybe it's the job transfer. Or maybe it's the rejection notice. Or maybe it's a car repair that comes along and you're looking at the bank account and you're like, oh, I can't pay for that. Maybe it's the kids are having trouble at school. who It hits squarely and it flattens us. And somehow we pull it together, we get the reserves, and we stand back up and go back into the game. And most of us can pull that off without too much trouble. We have some level of resilience. And so Ben, he did pull it back together, and he got back into the game, and because the game had been stopped, the referee awarded the ball to the other team, the kid put it down, stepped back, took a big kick, and you guessed it. It hit Ben squarely in the face. I have never received a dirty look like I got from a fifth grade boy that day. Like, why am I still in this game, and this isn't funny? But that's where life gets us. 
It's that second shot. Not to the gut, but to the face. Where you have struggled and you have gotten back up and you have said, I can do this and I can make this. And it comes right back and slaps you right in the face. Maybe it's repeated attempts that you've had to repair a relationship and it seems like no matter how hard you try, it never gets resolved. Or maybe it's a test that you took and that you failed and that you had to retake and and that you failed again. And maybe your job even depended on that test. Maybe it's that girl that you asked out for a date and then again and then again and, and you're still asking and still hoping but nothing's happening. Maybe it's that second interview that you made it through again and still there's no job offer again. Maybe it's the pregnancy test that came back negative again. And it's that again factor. It's not just that first shot that you take. It's the second shot or the third shot or the fourth shot. And we find ourselves in those moments of life discouraged. But that discouragement starts to build up and we add more discouragement to it and more discouragement to it. And pretty soon we start to replace the discouragement with cynicism or negativity. Well, this will never work out. Or why I didn't even, why didn't even try this? This was a dumb idea. Or sometimes we replace it with doubt. Or sometimes we replace it with dread. Like what else could go wrong here? Or sometimes we just replace it with a spirit where we just give up and the energy just flows out of us and we become hopeless. And so the question for all of us this morning is where in our lives have we become hopeless? And for some of us, it's just going to be in a specific area. It might be in a relationship area. It could be in a health area. It could be a financial area. It could be in a work area. But there's something that's like, this is never going to work out. I don't even know why I'm trying. And we are frustrated by it. We are defeated by it. We are knocked down by it. For some of you, maybe this morning, it's like all of these things have added up, and you're just looking at life in general going like, this is hopeless. And you want to give up and you want to quit and maybe there's no way to do that. But life can hurt, can it? In the past couple of weeks, I've had conversations with people who are really struggling. With relationships, with stress, with different things that are going on in their lives, with uncertainty. But underneath all of it, they're struggling with hope. Because you could keep hoping and keep hoping and keep hoping, but when it doesn't work out, It just becomes more and more frustrating. And it's easy to get to the place where we're just like, you know what, I'm just going to be done with hope. Because as long as I don't hope, then I don't get disappointed. And I have to wonder if that's not where a couple people were in the story that we're going to be looking at for the next four weeks. A couple of people by the name of Naomi and Ruth, and their story is told in the book, that bears Ruth's name. But they had been through some incredible hard times, and I think they had maybe gotten back up. But finally, they got that last ball to the face, and it had knocked them down. And that's where the story picks up, and that's where we dive in this morning. And so I want to encourage you to turn to Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to explore this story for the next four weeks, take it a chapter at a time. And maybe it's a familiar story to you. And if it's familiar, that's unfortunate. Because you know how it goes and you know how it turns out and that ruins the suspense. 
At the same time, maybe it's fortunate because you do know that as bad and as bleak as it is when it starts, it actually does turn out pretty good. And yet I would say it's maybe unfortunate because you're looking at this story going, well, yeah, nice that it worked out okay for Ruth and Naomi, but that's, my name's not Ruth, my name's not Naomi, that's not my story, and I don't really have any hope. And yet at the same time, it's helpful to us because just like Ruth's story, turned out okay, and Naomi's story turned out okay, your story can turn out okay as well. So keep that in mind as we look at this story. It's included in the scripture, and one of the reasons it's included is so that we can take some courage and some encouragement from this story. So let's read together Ruth chapter 1, verse number 1. In the days when the judges ruled, and so this just gives us the timeline and where this lands on the timeline, The Jews, the Israelites, had come up out of Egypt after 400 years in slavery. They'd been in the wilderness for 40 years. After the wilderness, Joshua had taken them into the promised land. They had conquered the promised land. After Joshua passes off the scene, the judges become the rulers of Israel. And this is the time when this story takes place. We're not exactly sure which judge was in place then, but it was at that time. After they'd come into the land of Canaan, the promised land, So this is an old story. But there was a famine in the land, in Israel. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live just for a while, that was the plan, in the country of Moab. So they were going to go back to the east over Jordan River to a foreign land because they were hungry and they were desperate. And so they go into the land of Moab and they settle there as foreigners. Tells us the, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And they had two sons named Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other one named Ruth. So this is a little bit curious that Jews were marrying somebody who was a non-Jew, a Moabite, on one side, because they really weren't supposed to be doing that. And so maybe that was a little bit of desperation on, on, the, on the side of these sons. But it also could have been desperation on the side of these women as well. Some scholars think that this is very possible that as the fathers of the day married off their daughters that like the last thing they would do would be marry off their daughter to a foreigner because you're marrying them off for land and and for finances and whatever. That was part of the economy of the day. And so if you had these daughters that really were not marriable, well, maybe you'd give them to a foreigner. We don't know, but that's at least a possibility. And the fact that Ruth and Orpah had been married to a foreigner may have been indicative of the fact that even by their families they had suffered some levels of rejection. That's just speculation, but some scholars put that out there. But anyhow, Ruth and Orpah married these two guys, Milan and Chilion, or Kilian. And it says after they lived there about ten years, both Milan and Kilian also died. And so Naomi now is left without her two sons. And her husband. So she lost her husband, and that was the the punch to the gut, right? And then she loses son number one, and that's the ball to the face. And then she loses son number two, and it hits again. 
And I think we read this story and we just read past this, but what incredible loss that this woman has gone through. Unbelievable. Incredible. And then she's a foreigner to boot. And then without sons or even grandsons, she has no financial means to even make it. She's in a horribly bad situation. And no surprise here, she loses hope. For Ruth and for Orpah, it's at least a little bit better. They're at least in their home country. And they are younger, so maybe there is some possibility of remarrying. But still, they're in a bad situation. And they need hope, and they need to find some hope. And where do they find it? Well, they find it on the road to Bethlehem. They find it on the road going back. And the beauty of this story, I believe, is that as we go through it chapter by chapter, it shows us where we can find some hope. And so I want to encourage us to follow right behind them and to find some of the same hope that they found. So we keep reading. Verse number 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. And they've already found some hope. And where they found hope was in the stories of God's provision. When they heard that there was food back where they used to live, And when we are struggling with hope, one of the most important things that we can do is to lean into the stories of God's provision. And that's exactly what we're doing right now as we go through this story. In this series on Ruth and on Naomi, we are leaning into their story and saying they found hope. If they found hope, maybe we can find hope too because God provided for them. But the Bible is full of stories where God provided when you're facing a Red Sea with nowhere to go, God provides a way through. Uh, when, when you're facing 5,000 people with nothing to feed them, God provides the food for the crowd. And you can go through just about every story in Scripture and say, this is an example of God providing. And so the point for us is, when you're struggling with hope, get out your Bible and start reading. Because in that book are the stories that are meant for us today of God providing. And so Ruth and Naomi, they heard that God was providing and they're like, step number one. Sometimes those stories we can find in other people's lives, around us. And this is why community, one of the reasons why community is important is because we can be encouraged by other people's stories. Because if God did it for you, maybe he'll do it for me. Maybe you can even go back and look at your own stories because if we're honest, most of us can find places in the past where God has provided for us. I was just thinking as I prepared this, there's a ring that's on my wife's finger. That It's the third diamond that she's gotten since we've been married because we managed to somehow lose the first two. You think after one, we might learn something, right? Well, we have learned now, her diamond's on there with six prongs, all right? Everybody else has four, we've got six, all right? Industrial strength wedding ring there. But the story of how that ring came to be and how that third diamond came to be, it's, it, that story lives on her finger. And, and that, that ring there reminds her, first of all, how lucky she is to have me. 
But actually what it really is, it's a reminder of how loved she is by a heavenly father. Who in some kind of, and I won't tell the whole story, but some really kind of unique ways provided for us. But what are the stories that you have? And if you don't have a story, what are the stories that maybe your friend has? Or if you don't have those stories, what are the stories that God has? But if you're going to find hope, you need to find it in the stories of God's provision. Well, we keep reading here in verse number 7. Naomi, with her two daughters-in-law, they left the place where they had been. And let me just stop right there. This is really, really important. They left the place where they had been. They left the place where they had been. And what they did is they found hope in putting a period to their past. And they said goodbye to Moab. And I'm sure Moab had been a place where some great joys, right? There had been a couple of weddings that took place there. And weddings are often times of great But it was also a place of great hurt. But regardless, either good or bad, it was like this part of life is done and it's time for us to move on. And sometimes when we are struggling with hope in our stories, one of the reasons is just because we keep going back and looking back and say, oh, it was so good, or remember this, or remember when. And that's fine, but sometimes we get trapped back there. And sometimes we need to say, you know what? That's not going to change. And there's nothing I can do to change it. We just need to put a period here. And we need to move on and we need to look to the future because when we look this way, we now have the power to make changes. We now have the power to do things a little bit different. We now have the power to pursue new paths and new opportunities. I think I shared this story back a little while ago. But with my my hearing loss... I kind of went into that kind of feel sorry for yourself mode. And people would be talking and be like, well, they're talking, but I have no idea what they're saying. And, and we'd get frustrated like that. And, and, and God worked it out for, for uh, me to get this hearing aid, but I had to go to this class. And so I went to a day-long seminar on hearing loss. And if you think that sounds bad, I thought so too. But it was actually fascinating. But I remember when I walked in that day, the instructor said, well, here's where we're going to start. She said, all of you are here in this class because you've lost at least some of your hearing. She says, you need to get over it. It's not coming back. And I was like, well, this is going to be a sympathetic day, isn't it? But you know what? It was exactly what I needed to hear. She wasn't being hard. She was just saying, you know what? You can, you can keep stewing on this. Or you can figure out how to go on. And that class was about, here's what you can do. And here's about the opportunities and possibilities. But we need that sometimes. We sometimes need to say, you know what? I'm just going to put a period there. And I'm going to move on. And I would say this, just because life won't be the same again, doesn't mean that life can't be good again. And by turning their back on Moab, And moving on, they were able to find some hope. And if we continue on in that verse, it says they they left the place where they've been living. They set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. And this is the third way that they found hope. They found hope in simply taking a step. 
When we become hopeless in our stories, one of the first things that we do is we stop moving. And we stop taking steps. And there's different reasons why we might stop taking steps. Sometimes we're afraid of making things worse. Sometimes we're like, I don't know if I can handle any more disappointment. Sometimes it's like, well, I don't even know what to do. Or sometimes it's like, I don't think this would really be worth the effort because at the end of the day, I might change a few things, but it's still not going to change the way that I feel. And hopelessness tends to paralysis. But one of the most important things that we can do is actually take a step. You don't have to have the whole thing figured out. You just need to say, what is one thing that I can do here? One thing that would move me forward. And if you take that step, well, then maybe you could take the next step. And if you could take the next step, and you take that step, and if you take enough next steps, you end up back in Bethlehem. And as we'll look at next week, you end up in some interesting places, but it all starts with simply taking the next step. Well, the story continues in verse number 8, and more details are given here. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, you know what? You go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you to find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. And they said to her, no, we'll go back to you, to your people. And so we have this really heart-wrenching situation where Naomi's like, there's still hope for you if you stay here. But me, I'm going back. Verse number 11. Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I'm not going to have any more sons who could become your husbands. Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even I thought if there was still hope for me, which I don't think there is, is what's implied there. Even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's, it's more bitter for me than for you. Because the Lord has turned his hand against me. Hey, there's still hope for you too. There's really not much hope for me. In fact, there's no hope for me. At this they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. And so Orpah walks back, but Orpah walks back alone. And Naomi and Ruth walk forward, and they walk forward together. And we can find hope in connecting with another traveler. When we get in these situations where we start to lose hope, one of the things that we naturally, a default that we naturally go to, is we start pushing people away from us. Sometimes I think we say it this way, I don't want to burden somebody else with my problems. I don't want to sound like a whiner. You know, I don't, I don't want to become a, a, a burden to somebody else. But the truth of the matter is that hopelessness doesn't need isolation. In fact, isolation and hopelessness are a deadly combination. And when we get to these points in our lives, when we are dealing with hopelessness, we desperately need community and friendship. This is why support groups like Grief Share or, or Divorce Care are really, really important in people's stories. Because there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain and it's too much sometimes to carry it yourself. And that's legit. And so we can invite other people into our stories. 
And I love what Ruth does here to Naomi. It's no, you're not going by yourself. But in the process of that, Ruth also found a companion for herself, didn't she? And so we can find hope sometimes in this person who will go through it with us. Sometimes it's the person who gives us strength. Sometimes the person who will challenge us. Sometimes the person will give us new perspective. Sometimes it's the person who will simply say, you know what? You're going to be okay. You can tell yourself that all you want, but sometimes it's not until another person says, you're going to be okay, that you're finally like, okay, maybe I will be. And somebody just saying, you know, you can do this, or you can make this, that gives us courage in our stories. And so when we struggle with hope, we need to connect with other travelers. We read on verse number 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people, her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, oh, no, no, no. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And the Lord deal with me, ever, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And that points out another place where we can find hope. And we can find hope in simple determination or being determined. By refusing to give up. By refusing to quit. There was a guy in a church in South Bend who was a big runner and a lot of People in the church would run, and Kelly was running some back in the day. But he used to have this phrase he would say to people, leave it all on the course. Don't come across that finish line with anything left in the tank. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that because we're like, ugh, I don't think if I can keep doing this. And so we put it in neutral, or sometimes we even put it in park. And we need to keep going. Pain has a tendency to take the fight out of you. But you can't stop. You need to keep going. And Naomi here actually packs it in, but not Ruth. It's like, I'm going. And for whatever reason, I'm going with you because somewhere she was finding in this story some reason for hope. And as we go through this story in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see some amazing things of where she found that. I've been reading the last couple of weeks uh, a book called North. Not up north, just simply north. It was written by a guy by the name of Scott Jurek. Um, and he was one of these ultra marathoners who would run these 100-mile races. Doesn't that sound like fun? And actually ran them out west a lot and had won this one race seven years in a row. So he was like the top of the game, top of the heap. And as he started to get older, he lost a little bit of his drive and he ran in a big race out in Leadville, Colorado. And before the race finished, he quit. And he just walked it in. And that just gnawed at him, and that just ate at him. And he said, you know what, i got to do something about that. And so he came up with this idea. And he said to his wife, he said, I want to, like, get the fire back. So I'm going to, I'm going to set the speed record for the Appalachian Trail. I'm going to set the FKT, the fastest known time. 
Some people, most people say, if you want to do it, the fastest start up in Maine and hike down to Georgia. He said, I'm going to do it backwards. I'm going to start down in Georgia and we're going to, we're going to not just hike. We're going to go to Mount Katahdin there in Maine and we're going to set the speed record, which would make it in about 46 days to hike over 2,100 miles. And so most days he was going to be covering 40 to 50 miles and not just hiking, but running. And when he couldn't run, hike. And so he started off on this pursuit. And his wife came along and they outfitted a van and she would go to each tra- uh, crossing where there was a road and be waiting for him because he couldn't carry a pack. And she'd have more food and whatever. And at the, at the end of the trail for that night, she'd be there in the van, he'd catch some sleep and, and get going. And so he got started off on that and everything went great for the first week and then he pulled a quad. And at the same time, he messed up something in his knee. And it's like, do I quit or do I keep going? And he decided to keep going and somehow kept going. Less miles, but the quad eventually healed itself, and the knee eventually healed itself, and he went on. And he ran into weather, and he ran into sickness, and where he was actually running with a fever sometimes. And he ran into mud, and he ran into, actually had an encounter with a bear one time. But he gets to the border of Maine, and he's got roughly 250 miles to go to make it to Mount Katahdin. And he starts to do the math and realizes he can't make it. He's got six days, and he's got to average like 40 miles a day. And he's already lost now 20 pounds on this thing, and, and he's, he's weak. And he does the math. He says, I cannot do the miles that I need to do. And that's on day 42 where he decides that, and he says, I just kind of slowed down and stopped running. I thought, you know what? It was a good attempt, and glad I tried this. But you know what? I'm just going to enjoy a nice hike to the top of but uh, Katahdin here, because I'm done. And he got to the van late that night, and his wife was waiting for him. He was like, what took you so long? He said, you know what? This was a good idea and a good attempt, but <clears throat> I'm done. And she looked at him and says, oh, no, you're not. I've been chasing you for 42 days with this van. She said, you are not done yet. You are not walking it in, buddy. And she said, get yourself some sleep. And she said, get up and let's go. And they brought in, and he'd been hiking with friends and, and running with friends, but they brought in the A-team and said, we're going to finish this. And so he ran that last hand hike, whatever he did, that last 250 miles, people with him the whole time, averaging like less than two hours sleep a night. In fact, it became somewhat delirious, and he tells the story of one night actually falling asleep well, Hiking, because he was so tired. But he got to the base of Katahdin on the last day, and his wife said, okay, you and me, we're going to the top. And up they went to the top. And this is the picture that you see of Scott Jurek. That's him right there in the middle. Looks a little scrawny, doesn't he? That's his wife right there. And he made it in... 42 days, 8 hours, and 7 minutes. Or 46 days, 8 hours, 7 minutes. He broke the record by 3 hours, and, or 8 hours and 13 minutes. But you know what's interesting to me about this picture? First of all, he made it. When hope was gone, he kept going. Secondly, notice how many people made it with him. He didn't get to the top by himself. And I think this is a great illustration. We talk about this idea of finding hope, of 
being determined and keep going, of finding travelers to go with you. But there's one last thing that's missing even from Scott Jurek's story. But it's not missing from Ruth's story. Verse number 19, the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived at Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has been has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It's an interesting thing that she said there, but if you back up to verse number 16, Ruth had said this to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And I think that something that Ruth got, and maybe Naomi got more than we realize in this story, but it's this point. We need to stubbornly believe in God in those times when hope is gone. And usually hope is gone because God hasn't come through in the way that we think he should come through. And we've got in our mind that if we do this, God will do this. And if I live my life this way, then and we've got this formula all figured out how it's supposed to go. And somehow it didn't go according to plan. And we step back and say, what just happened, God? You didn't do this the way that I thought you would or should do this. But I love Ruth here, who has just watched all of this happen to herself and to Naomi. And she says, what? I want your God. Is sometimes what we need to do when we have lost hope is stubbornly believe in God. And say, God, you're not acting like I thought you would act. You're not coming through like I maybe thought you would come through. You're not performing here in a way that I expect you to perform. But I will not stop believing in you. And sometimes we just need that stubborn hope in God. I think what's interesting is when Naomi says, I'm going back, she's going back to Bethlehem, but where's she going back to? She's still going back to her faith, even as shattered as it is. And sometimes when we have experienced that brokenness and even that brokenness in our faith, we just need to say, you know what? I still believe you're God. I still believe you're good. I still believe it's your work in my story. I refuse to quit on you. And we need to stubbornly believe in God. And so this chapter comes to an end in verse number 22. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem. And then notice this next line. As the barley harvest was beginning. And I love where this chapter ends and the story ends. It doesn't end with what's ending. It ends with what's beginning. And hope pushes us towards new beginnings. And sometimes we need to let that chapter close so that the next chapter can open up. And sometimes we need to say goodbye to Moab so that we can say hello again to Bethlehem. And that was the start of hope. So, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about finding hope. And what I want to do, just super practical today as we conclude. On your growth guide, we put this out every week. And uh, it will be in the U version. It's also in the back of your notes there. 
I've taken these six ideas of finding hope and matched them with a story or a passage in Scripture. And what I'd like to encourage you to do for the next six days is to do, to read that each day and to think about that point that we get from the story. So Monday, pick a story of God's provision, and there's a story there to read that might not be familiar to you. Day number two, Tuesday, identify where you need to put a period. And maybe put a period there, and maybe replace that past, even with a prayer that God would give you some new things. Wednesday, take a step. Do one simple thing that will move you forward. Thursday, connect with another person, another traveler. It might be another struggler, and you can be an encourager. It might be a stronger person. But connect with somebody. Could be a phone call. Could be a coffee. Connect. Friday, be determined. Write out some statements that say, I will. And make some promises even to yourself of how you will keep moving forward. And then Saturday, be stubborn in your belief. Find some promises in God's Word and bring them before God and say, you said this, and I'm going to stubbornly believe that you meant it. And I think if you'll do that, your hope will grow at least some. By the way, Ben Redmond today is a, a pastor at West Winds Community Church. He also is a professor at Spring Arbor University and is the executive director of The Hub, which is this really cool outreach center in Jackson, Michigan for teenagers. And I'd like to think that some of his success goes back to the day when I told him to get back up. And I hope that by the time we're done, even with this series, that maybe a turning point in your life will be because of the encouragement of Ruth and Naomi to get back up and to get going.